So before I give the instructions, I wanted to discuss some practicals. Uh, number one, when you go to sleep tonight, make a determination in your mind the time that you want to wake up. So don't do it exactly at 5 a.m. or whatever it might be. 4.57, 5.02, something like that. This is going to be important for you later on when you do more advanced practices. But uh, see how well your mind is able to hit that determination. Uh, secondly, we are going to be uh, doing... Tomorrow there's not going to be any interviews. Tomorrow we're going to be doing something very interesting, uh, guided by Venerable Matananda. And that is uh, what we call, well, we used to call it metta blasting, but I think metta circle is a better way of putting it. So uh, Venerable Metananda will guide you through that process, and it's going to be a fun little game for you to start to bring up that feeling of metta, that feeling of loving kindness. So the first thing I want to talk about is smiling. It's very important that we maintain a smile throughout the day. So just as you are going to be determining, determining the time that you're going to be waking up, you're also going to determine that when you do wake up, you will wake up with a smile on your face. And then you're going to make a determination to keep that smile going. The smile is very important for this practice because it keeps the mind light. It keeps the mind uplifted. And it keeps the mind relaxed. This whole process that you're going to be going through for the next 10 days is not a process of striving. It's not a process of pushing. It is not a process of trying too hard. It's a process of letting go, allowing things to be as they are, and relaxing and having fun. So whatever uh, practices you've done in the past, I would request that you keep it in a box and set it aside for the next 10 days and give your best in trying out this meditation. So the other importance of smiling is that it immediately brings you back to the present. It immediately uplifts your mind to be mindful. And that's one of the things I want to discuss about is mindfulness. What is mindfulness? So mindfulness comes from the word sati, which comes from the Sanskrit smriti, which means memory or to remember. So the definition that we've been given by Bhanteva Maramsi, which fits what we're doing with this practice, is that mindfulness is to remember, to observe how mind's attention moves from one thing to the other. 
In essence, that is metacognition. Observing how mind moves, how mind reacts, how mind thinks, how mind meditates. So you are observing the mind when it is meditating. You do not become the meditator. So keep that in mind when you sit down for your practice. Now, as, as for the practice, you start off with a smile, like I said, a small smile. When you see the picture of meditators and the Buddha, you see that they have a little smile on their face. Put a smile there, put a smile in your heart, a smile in your mind, a smile in your eyes, and relax. And then when you sit down for meditation, you could sit cross-legged, you could sit on the chair, whatever works for you. And you want to keep your back relatively straight, your chin parallel to the floor. And you want to keep your whole body relaxed. So find if there's any tension in the body and just intend to relax it. Now, this meditation is a feeling meditation, which means you are feeling something in your body. It's a psychosomatic experience. And that's the feeling of loving kindness, which is this warmth in your heart, in your chest, like a candle flame that keeps glowing. To bring up that feeling, you could do it a few ways. You could use phrases in the mind like, may I be happy, may I be well, may I be free of suffering, may I be filled with loving kindness. And you can say this in your mind a few times, but don't chant it in your mind like a mantra. It's just to keep the feeling going. Or you can bring up a wholesome image something from your past, something that uplifts the mind. You can imagine yourself holding a little chubby baby in your arms, right? And look into its eyes and let it smile at you and smile back at it. Or a little puppy or a little kitten, whatever makes your mind uplifted. And another way is to start to think about the things that you are grateful for. Gratitude. So the key here is once you start, whether it's the phrasing, a wholesome memory, a wholesome image, or gratitude, once you tap into the feeling in your heart, let go of the phrases, let go of the images, and then rest your awareness on that feeling. This is the metta. For the first 10 minutes of the meditation, you are going to be sending yourself metta. And you're going to rest your awareness there. After 10 minutes, you will then switch over to a spiritual friend. Your kalyana mitta. 
Now, when I say spiritual friend, sometimes people think that that means somebody who's spiritually perfect. Not necessarily. It's somebody that you admire. Somebody you might be best friends with. Somebody you like. Somebody you know or somebody you see in the public life that you admire. The key is this person that you think of immediately brings a smile to your face. So this person should be of the same sex, should be alive, and should not be a family member. We will deal with family members later. For the time being, we are dealing with one spiritual friend. And there are a couple of ways to send this loving kindness to your spiritual friend. You can imagine them in front of you, smiling, and there's a heart-to-heart connection where you are sending that feeling of loving kindness to that spiritual friend. Or, if it feels like you're pushing too much, take that spiritual friend and put them in your heart and keep the feeling going and imagine that they are just basking in that feeling of metta. Now you want to meditate for a minimum of 30 minutes, no less than 30 minutes. If you can sit longer, good, but at least for 30 minutes. When you meditate, you will inevitably become distracted. You have to understand what distractions are, what hindrances are. Hindrances are your best friends. Hindrances are your teachers. Hindrances shed light on where your attachments and the sources of your aversion reside. So if you have any aversion to the hindrance that arises, you have to change that. You have to reframe your relationship with distractions. Be open to having them. Completely fine. So what is a distraction? What is a hindrance? A distraction is that which pulls your attention away completely from the object of meditation. In other words, when you are meditating and you are feeling the loving kindness and you notice thoughts in the background, that's fine. Those thoughts will dissipate because there is a lack of attention being given to them. When you are with your loving, your feeling of loving kindness and then suddenly your mind is thinking about something else, Maybe it hears something in the distance and it goes to that and now it takes you into a vortex of different kinds of thoughts. Now you are not with the feeling of loving kindness. That is a distraction. So how do you deal with distractions? The Buddha prescribed right effort. We will be going deeper into this, but just for your understanding, there are four components to right effort. The first is to prevent unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. 
The second is to abandon already arisen unwholesome states. The third is to generate wholesome states of mind. And the fourth is to maintain that wholesome state of mind. So how do you do this? We use a mnemonic device to help you remember how to do this. And that is known as the six R's. The six R's are recognize, release, relax, re-smile, return, and repeat. So what is recognize? Recognize means to remember, to bring back your mindfulness. So as soon as you realize that you are distracted, let's say you are meditating, you are with your object, with the feeling of loving kindness, staying with your spiritual friend, all of a sudden you think about something at home or you forgot to do something, now you're no longer on your object. And now you're in that whirlpool of different kinds of thoughts. But eventually you recognize, oh wait, I'm distracted. I'm no longer meditating. Now your metacognition is back. And so that's the first step. You recognize that you were distracted. Then you release your attention from that distraction. And that's easy because all you have to do is take your attention from that, bring it back to mind and body. And then you relax. When we talk about relax, this is tranquilizing the formations, tranquilizing the bodily and mental formations. So craving, tanha, trishna. This is defined in many different ways. But with this practice, what we found is that craving manifests as tightness and tension in the mind and body. Anytime you have a distracting thought, your mind contracts, your body physically for a moment contracts, and there is tension in there. So when you relax, you are relaxing any tightness and tension that you're holding in the body and in the mind. And as you relax, you will find that there is a spaciousness, an openness in the mind. The mind is like, once you relax, the mind is like a clear, open blue sky, cloudless sky. And this is a preview of Nibbana, the cessation of suffering. Once you've relaxed, you come back to the smile, because this is how you started the meditation. And then, using that as an anchor, you come back to the feeling of loving kindness. When you get distracted, you repeat again. This process of the six R's is to be used not only in meditation, whether it's sitting or walking, but all the time. It's a process of reconditioning your mind. Throughout your life, at some point or another, or throughout your many lives, let's say, the conditioning has been such that the mind See something that it wants, something that is pleasant. And it says, I like it. And when it says, I like it, it says, I want it. 
and there is a contraction in the mind and in the body in preparation to get it. And as soon as it satisfies that craving, it experiences relief. On the flip side of that, if there is something that is unpleasant, the mind says, I don't like that. I don't want that. And tries to push it away. And in that process of trying to push away, it prepares itself in that fight or flight kind of mindset. And it does that by contracting the muscles of the body, by contracting the mind. And as soon as the source of the aversion goes away, it feels relief. And this is how the mind has been conditioned to react. But when you use the six R's, you are reconditioning the mind. First, you are deconditioning that process that was almost automatic when it comes to anything that causes attachment or aversion or identification with that process. Because now, when you six R, when you recognize that there's craving, that there's a distraction, you release your attention from that, you relax the tightness and tension, you feel relief in that moment, come back to the smile, come back to a more balanced mind or your object of meditation. Now what happens? Now you've already felt relief. So why crave? Why have aversion? So that relief that you had experienced before as a result of satisfying your craving or as a result of pushing the source of your aversion away, that relief you experience before, before the craving can completely manifest, before the aversion can completely manifest. So when you feel that relief, you no longer feel connected or identified with any of that process. So this is the importance of the six R's for daily use in your life. Now, in terms of the walking meditation, the walking meditation is very simple. All you are doing is you're walking at a normal pace. You can walk wherever you want, up and down the stairs, around the garden, wherever it is you'd like to walk. And uh, one very apparent distraction that you will find is in the sky. Paragliders. So when you see them, don't get frightened. Don't get distracted by them. When you're walking, just look ahead of you and just walk at a normal pace. You don't need to do any kind of slow meditative walking. Walk at a normal pace and bring up that feeling of loving kindness and let your awareness be infused with that feeling of metta. Just stay with your spiritual friend. Stay with that feeling of loving kindness. And keep that going. And when you get distracted while you're walking, you do the same thing. You recognize you were distracted. Release your attention from that distraction. Relax the mind and body. Resmile and return back to your object of meditation. And then repeat whenever necessary. Now, when you are doing this process of the six R's, you don't want to say, okay, now I'm recognizing, now I'm releasing, now I'm uh, relaxing, now I'm re-smiling, now I'm returning. You don't have to do that. Just do it. Right? Don't make it like a mantra. In the process of, okay, you notice that you're distracted. That's recognizing. 
Now you bring your awareness back to the mind and body. That's releasing. You consciously relax. That's relaxing. You come back to the smile. If you're already smiling, great. And you come back to your object of meditation. This is a flow. It should take you no more than three to four seconds to do the six R's. Less than that would be ideal. So when you're doing the walking meditation, you can walk for, say, 15 to 20 minutes. You want to sit for longer. So, as I said, a minimum of 30 minutes, 45 minutes is better. One hour is even better. And then intersperse that with some walking to keep the blood moving. And then for those who have gone a little more advanced, because there are some previous students in this retreat, for those of you who are doing what's known as the six directions, all you have to do is bring up the feeling of loving kindness or whatever Brahma Vihara it might be and radiate it in each direction, whatever order you want in each of the six directions, that's forwards, backwards, right, left, below you, above you. Each direction for five minutes. And then in all directions, like a bubble that continues to expand for as long as you can maintain it. And of course, when you get distracted, use the six R's. Eventually, when you get to quiet mind, let your mind rest in the quiet mind. Initially, the quiet mind is not all too quiet. But that's okay. Eventually, it will become very quiet. Completely quiet. And you keep going. And that's it. Any questions? Yes. How, how would you describe resting on a quiet mind? Like, is it, I feel like I tend to look for something to focus on. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Better. I guess, how would you describe the object of meditation during the quiet mind? Yeah. So quiet mind is sort of just being aware. It's so when you're, when you're radiating equanimity, for example, when you radiate equanimity, there is a certain almost very subtle feeling that's being expanded. And eventually, uh, it disappears. The analogy that I like to use is you imagine the surface of a very still, quiet lake, and then you drop a little pebble into that lake. Dropping that pebble is your intention of radiating equanimity. And then it starts to create ripples on the surface. And that keeps going until it stops. And you keep doing that. Eventually, you're going to find that there is a certain subtle tension when you try to radiate. And that's the mind telling you that it's had enough of any kind of activity. It just wants to rest. What it rests on is just that clarity of mind. Right? There's, this, there's this sense of uh, awareness that's there. It's almost like a, a crystal ball that you're just resting your awareness on. Now, like I said, in the initially quiet mind might not be altogether quiet, and you might feel like there are a lot of thoughts in the background, or even just you know, hitting you left, right, and center. Uh, 
And so the way I would look at that is you are in the eye of the storm. Just rest your awareness in the center, right? Just be with mind. And that is, that is as simple as just observing. But not observing anything in particular. Letting mind just rest in itself. And so all of the other stuff that's there around you, that's in the storm, because your attention is not being given to it, it starts to dissipate. And now all you have is that crystalline awareness. This is the way to understand quiet mind. Actually, the Pali for it is Pabhasara Chitta, the luminous mind. There's a certain radiance to it, a certain uh, brightness to it. And there's a little, there's a sense of solidity to it because there's like it's like a foundational awareness that you're resting in. Yeah, um, pass the mic to him. Yeah, um, I found at times that um, uh, giving loving kindness um, itself seems to involve a, a lot of effort, and it feels like a struggle and. You know, uh, there is some sort of tension that I get at the front of my head, which uh, no matter how much I relax, it doesn't go away. And I usually feel a little stuck at that point of time, and I just just keep 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 giving loving kindness, however it is. What's the right way to deal with that? So, what is your object of meditation? Um, I have a spiritual friend to whom uh, uh, you know um, I keep wishing that I hope he's doing well. I hope he's he's happy. I hope he's calm. That's that's basically what it is. Yeah, so with the feeling, are you able to lock into the feeling? Do you feel the feeling? Uh, I think so. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm doing something that's not right, but um, uh, 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 I, I try to imagine him and, you know, I, I try to imagine him feeling calm and him, him feeling happy, which makes me feel glad about it. But um, it still seems to be a little bit of as if um, stuff in that. Okay. Uh, do you start with the first 10 minutes sending loving kindness to yourself? No. You should do that first. Okay. Try to lock into the feeling of loving kindness. Okay. And uh, if you're not able to feel it, it could be that you're, yeah, you might be pushing too hard. If you can just feel a little bit of that uplifted quality to your mind, very relaxed, joyful. And if you let the mind just lock into that and just rest the awareness there, that's more than enough. And so for the first 10 minutes, you definitely want to start with that. And then just drop your friend into that feeling and continue maintaining that feeling. And if you're still having any trouble with that, then we'll talk about that in our private interviews. Yeah, can you hand the mic down, please? Small question. Is yeah. it okay to wear spectacles while? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, can you please hand the mic down? Uh, just a clarification. So we start with 10 minutes of metta towards oneself and then start to. Um, bring a Kalyan Mitra in and do the metta towards them and then that's the that's the practice for the whole session is that right right so always start for the first 10 minutes with the spiritual friend 
And then for the rest of the meditation, sit here with, I'm sorry, with yourself. And then for the rest of the sit, with your spiritual friend. You said choose someone who's of the same gender. Yeah. And uh, so two questions around that. One is that many times, just because of the patriarchal structure of things, most of our teachers happen to be men. <laughs> and secondly, there could be many people who are LGBTQ identified. Yeah. yeah. So can you address that in that context? Yeah, please? definitely. Thanks. Definitely. Uh, in, that, in that context, then I would say choose anyone you'd like anyone that befits that quality of a spiritual friend. Traditionally, the way it has been uh, given the instructions is that it's of the same gender. But given the fact that uh, we live in a world where, yes, we have to address, address these things, then I would say that uh, find somebody that is suitable for you as a spiritual friend, whatever their gender is. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, hi, Delson. My name is Prabhu. Uh, so on the second point, on the least step, you said uh, put your, you uh, do that, you release the attention on your mind and body. I can, uh, meaning put your attention on the mind and body. I can understand the body part. How to do the mind thing? It's enough to just put your attention on the body. Your mind is already present there. Well, it could be anyone that you think about that immediately puts a smile on your face. Somebody who you admire. I mean, the, the, the definition of a spiritual friend in practical terms is somebody who is looking out for your benefit. Somebody who corrects you when you're wrong. Somebody who praises you when you're right. Somebody who defends you when people criticize you. Somebody who looks out for you in practical terms, in your daily life. But for the purpose of the meditation, what we're saying is anybody who brings up a feeling of you want them to be happy, that, that is a spiritual friend in that context. No, initially you want to stay with one spiritual friend. Uh, so for the purpose of the practice, initially, you stay with one. And then later on, we will talk about multiple spiritual friends and family members and so on and so forth. But certain things have to happen for that to happen, to qualify for that. So that will happen when you tell me what's going on with your meditation, and then I will change your meditation accordingly. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that's why I explained that spiritual doesn't really mean 
somebody who's spiritually perfect. It's, it's just a friend. Somebody that you want uh, their happiness. When we are practicing six directions, six directions, do we also need to start with the first ten minutes? Uh, you can. You can if it helps to lock into the feeling. But if you just want to start from the first direction, go for that. Thanks. Uh, just with the relaxed step, do you find a kind of commonality on specifically where people are relaxing? Like, is it usually people are relaxing the neck or the shoulders or the chest, or, or is it pretty much different for, for everyone? It can be different for different people. Um, I can't say majority of people who might. Do you, do you find that there's a... I would say normally the, uh, normally the forehead. Yeah. But a subtle physical tension but then as your practice becomes more and more refined the uh, the relaxed step is that it's almost like you've clenched onto some distraction with your mind like your mind has um, like your mind has uh, your mind has just grasped onto something and then you'll notice that when you release the mind it's just this relaxation in and of itself. It might not be a physical sensation in the body. So actually I'll give you a little experiment now because this helps some people get the sense for the relaxed step, which is that if you just, if everyone will just put their finger in front of you and then take a moment to focus just on the tip of your finger with all of your attention and block everything else out, just focusing solely on the tip of your finger. And now release your gaze so that you let in your entire peripheral vision. So you're no longer looking at your finger, you're just letting in everything in your field of awareness. And then you can go back and forth a couple times. And notice how your mind kind of clenches on to focus on the tip and there's a little bit of tension there. And then you'll notice as you release and open up your awareness, there's this kind of relaxation. So that's the relaxed step right there. And you know, it's not gonna be a visual object most of the time that you get distracted by, but whether it's a thought or whatever it is, uh, that's the kind of feeling of the relaxed step. It's just really subtle and kind of quick. Anyone else? Yeah. So you mentioned that at the beginning, um, we uh, go ahead and choose uh, ourselves, and then um, a friend. Uh, let's say we're with our friend, and we have this distraction that continues to come up, and while we still continue trying to release and relax, it'll go, but then it'll come right back. Yeah. 
Is there something we can do about that? No. That's the nature of reality. That's the nature of all experience. It arises and passes away. So when you do the six hours, you might have to do it a hundred times in one moment. The, the, the practice is to continue to do it every time you get distracted. And so what you're teaching yourself, because remember, this, this whole practice is all about teaching yourself. Your mind is your own teacher. We can only guide you in terms of where the path leads, you know, where to go. Don't go this way. Try this way. Try that out. But you have to be able to actually walk the path. So in walking the path, you start to see for yourself, oh, every time I get distracted, it's because I'm putting too much effort. Maybe uh, when I come back to my object of meditation, I'm pushing too much. And because of that, restlessness can arise and more tightness and tension can arise. Or you're, you're teaching yourself that, okay, well, this is the nature of the mind. It will continue to be distracted until it's not. But what you will find if you are diligently, not striving, remember, not pushing, but diligently in the sense of sincerely doing the effort and not becoming bopped down by it. As we continue the talk on the six stars over the next few days, you'll see how it fulfills a lot of the different aspects of the practice in the Tama. But one of the things that it does is it starts to develop your equanimity. So that even if distraction happens, no big deal. You know, you don't care. It's fine. But as many distractions come up, that's as many times you six are. So by the end of this retreat, you are going to feel disenchanted with the word six R's. You're going to feel nauseated by the continuous usage of the words six R's. And probably most of the answers to your questions are going to be, do the six R's. Yeah, please pass the mic. Yeah, so I'm a bit confused about uh, the process. Yeah. The first is yourself. The sec that's 10 minutes. The second is your friend, which is another 10 minutes. No, no. It's for the rest of the practice. It's for the rest of the time that you yeah. sit or meditate right. or walk. Right. Okay. Was that, was that the question? Yeah, okay. I mean... In every sitting, you start with yourself for 10 minutes. And then for the rest of the practice, rest of the sit, you stay with your spiritual friend. Yeah, please. If you can't. If I can't decide choosing my uh, spiritual friend. Um, is there somebody that you admire, somebody that you respect, somebody maybe in the public life that you look up to? There has to be somebody that you like. <laughs> I, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I have to, because that will, uh, like, the whole night I'll uh, confuse myself, whom should I choose, I know. First of all, remember, nobody... It will uh, stress me. That's yeah, first remember, nobody is perfect. Yeah, that's why. That's fine. Nobody is perfect. It's okay. You can choose anybody as a spiritual friend. Even a small girl I can choose? Yes, of okay. course. Okay. 
Thank you. Any directions on keeping the eyes open or closed for the formal sitting practice? Yeah, the formal sitting practice, you want to keep your eyes closed. Um, it's okay to keep your eyes open. Sometimes you're, you're in your meditation, all of a sudden your eyes open and they just want to stay open. And that's okay. But if they're open, don't get distracted by any movement or things that are going. So initially when you're starting out on this practice, you want to keep your eyes closed. If I have chosen a spiritual friend and I believe going good and once upon a time I feel maybe I want to change my spiritual friend, is it needed or is it that my want to continue with it? I give everybody permission to change your spiritual friend one time. Just one time and that's it. So choose wisely. <laughs> choose carefully. Acharya, just wanted to know when I start the meditation, I find it tough to sit straight without mm. leaning on the wall. Is mm. it okay to lean on the wall? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. You could even sit in the chair if you want, if that okay. helps. Yes. Yeah. All the way, oh, is there somebody else here or all the way back there? So the last time and couple of times I've tried meditation, what I realized is I go into this state of half asleep, half awake. Mm -hmm. Like my mind is aware that I'm sleeping, mm. but at the same time I'm sleeping. Mm. How do I tackle that? What is your uh, meditation? What do you do when you meditate? So I went to Vipassana a couple of years back and I would just generally sit down for 15-20 minutes and close my eyes and try to focus on the breath. Okay. So try out this practice and see if you find yourself in that same uh, state and we can discuss that in your private interviews uh, Yeah Just a comment. Yeah, I think one of the concerns about choosing the spiritual friend is people feel they may get stuck with the friend for the whole retreat Yeah, yeah, no, don't worry. You're not going to be stuck <laughs> with them for the whole 10 days. Hopefully not See, the, the thing is, this is just the first phase. There will be three phases to this practice. So initially, from our experience, for the first couple of days, maybe three days, you'll be with your spiritual friend. Maybe by the fourth or fifth day, you'll be doing the second phase, and then the third phase, finally. So don't worry. You don't have to stay with one spiritual friend forever. The mic there, please. Oh yes, that's a good uh, that's a good uh, question. Can you repeat the question just for? So, how you close the session? How Thank do you, you close the session? Yeah. So, if you can sit and you feel like you want to continue sitting, just keep sitting. Um, I'm not sure about the practicals in terms of meals. I don't know if a meal can be set aside. Can they? Yeah. But eventually you'll be able to sit for longer, longer periods where you might just don't want to even have lunch at that point in time. So it might, a meal will be set for you at some point. Um, you can sit for as long as you can, and that is up until the Dhamma talk. 
You know, sometimes people ask me that. But coming back to how do you close the session, it's just a matter of uh, whenever your mind feels like it wants to get up and do some walking meditation. That's it. If you think that uh, the mind feels distracted and wants to get up because of restlessness, then you 6R that restlessness, and then you cajole the mind like a little child and say, all right, let's just sit for five more minutes. And then again, after five minutes, the mind says, no, 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 I want to get up now. And I say, no, how about another five minutes? And eventually you see you're sitting for another hour. One more question, yeah. So if pain arises, is another distraction? Pain Are you treated like another distraction? It can be, like physical or mental pain. So there's something called meditation pain. This happens later on in your practice. It can happen, not that it will happen. Meditation pain is the kind of pain that you feel generally sometimes here around uh, your shoulder area, around your chest area, around your neck. Depends where the tension is. And it arises as a result of the mind trying too hard and pushing through the meditation. And so the mind hardens and constricts. And you know it's meditation pain because when you move around, that pain disappears. But it's, if it's physical pain... When you get up from your meditation, you uh, walk or whatever it is, that pain continues. So meditation pain, whatever pain you're feeling, it's not a matter of sitting through it exactly. It's a matter of understanding your relationship with that pain. In other words, the mind automatically has aversion towards something that's painful. So when you're 6 ring you're not using the 6Rs to let the pain go. Because you can't. It's a feeling. It's an experience. right? It, a, pain, a painful feeling is the same as you uh, watching a blue sky. You can't 6R the sky away. right? It's just there. But your relationship to it, how do you react to the pain, is important. So if you're noticing that there's aversion to that pain, that there's irritation, there's uh, frustration, there's uh, wanting to pull back and come out of the sitting, Notice that, recognize that, release your attention from that, relax that. And what you're going to notice is that the pain might still be there, but you're no longer bothered by it. Your mind becomes equanimous and disenchanted. Yeah, if I could just add something yeah. to that. Uh, there's also Bhante, our teacher, Bhante Vimalaramsi, would often say that there's no magic to the floor. So some people have a body that, you know, their hips and their back are such that they have no problem sitting cross-legged. But if, uh, if you're someone who wants to sit in a chair, then you're no less of a hero for meditating in a chair. Uh, and in fact, you might reach a point where you're asked to sit for a length of time where it'd be excruciating if you tried to sit on the floor. So just be kind to yourself. You don't want to be sitting there like kind of uh, gutting it out, you know, just kind of, I'm going to force through all this pain that I'm creating for myself. If you're really uh, having pain because of your posture, then you should find a really comfortable seat. And we will arrange for more chairs. I mean, just tomorrow or day after, as people move to chairs with longer sittings, they will show up, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's a question all the way in the back. So. Do you have any do you have any advice on continuing the practice outside of the formal meditation? So for example, while eating a meal, should I be focused on what's in front of me or should I be radiating? Right. Good question. Because uh, the, the, the whole point of the walking practice is actually showing you or helping you exercise the ability to imbue loving kindness with everything that you're doing. So in other words, the walking practice is helping you to see that initially the mind becomes occupied by its thoughts. Even when you're eating your food or you're taking a shower or you're going for a walk or you're driving or whatever it might be, your mind is occupied, right? That's the default mode network that continues thinking about the past or the future or this or that. But what you're training or retraining your mind to do is whatever activity it is you're doing, you're imbuing it with loving kindness. So if you're eating, yes, you're aware that you're eating, but you can eat with the attitude of loving kindness. If you're walking, you walk with the attitude of loving kindness. If you're standing up, you're standing up with the um, awareness of loving kindness. So the key here is to stay with your meditation object. Initially, I mean, basically 24-7 if possible. But right now that might not be possible because you need to sleep and everything. But it's basically from the time you wake up the time you go to bed, you stay with the feeling as much as you can. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, let's do the one in the back, and then we could bring him back up here. Thank you. Oh, Venerable, uh, um, you, the stresses on the 6R, so, um, is this the only instruction that you have, or there's like something written down, or something we can I can look at? Yeah, uh, there is um, instructions. I think there are books here. Uh, we can. Do you want to distribute that now? Yeah. 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 So there, in that book, there will be what I just discussed with the six R's. It will be there, so you can review through that. So the crux of this practice is really the six R's. It's the right effort to be able to retrain the mind from being distracted all the time, that wandering mind, to being here, present right now, seeing things as they are, completely undistracted. So that's really, that's the only thing that's going to be talked about in this retreat. One more question. Uh, yeah on this 10 minutes on oneself and the rest on the spiritual friend. Yeah. <clears throat> and the other teacher stressed about like, you know, not cutting it out and maybe choosing a chair. Yeah. So is there a formal uh, kind of a structure there about, because you only said like half an hour. Right, no, well, half an hour is a minimum. But, uh, so the first 10 minutes always, and then if you're sitting a two hour practice, the rest of that one hour, 50 minutes, you'll be with your spiritual friend. Until I change your meditation, that's only going to be dependent upon 
our interview together and what you explained to me what's going on in your meditation. Can you hand the mic forward? I think one of the things that um, I find difficult is uh, basically uh, the tiredness and sleep which creeps in. So uh, this, I think one of the things which you said that you know the meditation that we are going to be doing is more about letting go and not trying to struggle or strive against it. And on the other hand, there is this uh, resistance which comes up. Mm. I, I, I sometimes feel pretty confused that should I push myself harder and you know act against my uh, tiredness and my sleep or uh, you know. Yeah. Um, um, or, 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 or is it just the mind's way of uh, you know saying that I, I don't want to do something new? Yeah. So for everyone here, just so you don't get disappointed, I'll let you know now itself. For the first two days, you are going to feel sleepy. You are going to feel sloth and torpor. This is a normal uh, cycle through the 10-day retreat. Don't push through it. Don't fight it. It's there. Fine. As your mind and body adjusts to the routine, that slot and torpor will start to dissipate. Now, what are some things you could do to deal with that slot and torpor, to deal with that tiredness and dullness of mind? One, meditate in a place that's bright. So when you're meditating in the daytime, it's pretty bright here. Oftentimes, you know, when back in Damasuka, in Missouri, people have a tendency to switch off the lights and meditate in the dark, and then that makes them fall asleep. Please keep the lights on while you're meditating. Uh, another practical instruction is when you're doing the walking meditation, walk backwards. Because when you walk backwards, your attention is primarily on making sure that you don't trip and fall which means you are tightening up your attention a little bit. As you progress through the retreat, you will understand this whole process of attention, what it is. It's like the aperture of a camera lens, right? Uh, depending upon how much you focus, it'll be too much or not enough. When there's not enough collectedness, when there's not enough focus, then there's a tendency for the attention to become too widespread and too distracted to a point that you have slot and torpor. When it becomes too tight, then there's a tendency for tension to arise, and, and from that restlessness, too much mental activity. So you have to be able to adjust accordingly. If there's too much, pull back a little bit. But the tendency, and I'll tell you this, generally speaking from my experience with meditators with this practice, there's two things that are the common pitfalls. Number one, trying too hard. And number two, non-acceptance. And that means non-acceptance of the present situation of the Dharma right now, and non-acceptance of yourself. There's a tendency to try to be perfect in everything that we do. Let go of that idea. That's why people try too hard. So my advice for that is whatever effort you think that you need to do, do that by half 
and then adjust accordingly. Do you want to add something about that? The sloth and torpor. Oh, the sloth and torpor. Um, Definitely take naps throughout the day if you need to. I would say limit that to 30 minutes max so that you're not groggy. And uh, yeah, just be strategic. You know, a lot of this practice is about getting to know yourself. So ideally by the end of the retreat, you feel like you're your own guide and you know how to deal with your mind and you understand your mind really well. And so a lot of questions that come up, you might find that you can actually answer yourself through your own kind of self-knowledge and intuition. And that's really one of the key skills that you're developing here. And so that goes for, um, that goes for your sloth and torpor as well. Like notice what causes that and what alleviates it and what, what, what's, kind, what's the kind of routine that's going to work best for you as far as getting to bed on time or taking a nap at a strategic time. Yeah, please send it back. No, no, to you. Yeah. So, uh, for the sitting practice, any instructions on how still we should try to be? As still as he is. All right, thanks. Uh, there is a slight uh, being fear that I may not be able to do it. I may be in pain or it, I mean, I'm, I'm doing it in the right way. Yeah. Uh, how do I get rid of it or how to keep it aside? That is uh, the hindrance of doubt, self-doubt. Am I doing this right? What if this happens? What if that happens? The key to that is six R's. Just do the practice. Everything will be fine. As far as I know, nobody has died from this practice. <laughs> so you're going to be fine. Any last questions? What do you think? <laughs> 25 spoonfuls. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> eat until you feel full, that's it. And so you have to be aware of, okay, if I eat one more spoonful, I'm going to fall asleep, right? So be mindful about all these things. But at the same time, you don't need to be like, Oh, I should, I should stop now because it's going to affect my meditation. Experiment. 
Treat this next 10 days like an experiment. See what works for you. Become more in tune with your body. Become more in tune with this is what the body reacts. This is how the body reacts if I eat this way. Uh, this is how the mind reacts if I don't eat this way. These kinds of foods have this kind of effect on my meditation. These kinds of foods have a beneficial effect on my meditation. So adjust accordingly. And then eventually, you know, use your intuition. What Venerable Metananda was talking about earlier is you're getting in tune with the intuition of your mind. You, whenever you follow your intuition, and it is, it's as easy as asking the mind a question and then waiting for the answer. Not trying to analyze what the answer is, not trying to reflect on what that answer could be, but just purely allowing it to be there. And then, like an insight, the mind's intuition will give you the right answer. It will be the right answer all the time, but it might not be the answer that you want. Yeah, and related to that, a lot of what you're trying to see for yourself in this practice is how things work cause and effect like what caused this not analytically but just through observing reality as it unfolds so you know we're we're not getting caught up in why things are this way or that way it's how does the process work so that has to do with also noticing how does food affect your body you know if you're eating too much does that make you really tired afterwards or whatever it is Uh. Please hand it this way. And Hello. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> uh, with the feeling of meta in the chest, in mm. the heart area, sometimes when the feeling is very strong or you are for a long time with that feeling, you might feel like a pressure in the chest. A feeling? Pressure. Pressure, pressure yeah, in yeah. the chest. Sometimes a bit uncomfortable that you think like, oh, maybe it's too much pressure. What do we do in that case? Yeah, just pull back a little bit. Maybe you are pushing too much, so just pull back a little bit. Things will manifest while you're practicing. A lot of interesting things might happen in your meditation as you're sitting for longer periods of time. And not necessarily always longer periods of time initially, but only when your mind is staying with its object for a certain amount of time, you might start to notice things, you know, pulsation in the chest or uh, more heat or more joy coming up or all of these things. Allow them to be there. But if you find it's uncomfortable, pull back your attention a little bit. Maybe you're pushing too hard. Behind you. Hi. Uh, so uh, the last time I joined an online retreat, Acharya, and I really enjoyed it. And I went to the stage of the four directions. But six I directions. Oh, six directions. Yeah. I'm sorry, yes. But I haven't been uh, consistent in my meditation, so I'm wondering... Should I now go back to the spiritual friend or do six directions? You can start with the six directions. It's okay. okay. Maybe if you feel like you can start 10 minutes with yourself and then start with the six directions. Got it. Thank you. That's fine. Anything else? Oh, 
all the way in the back. Yeah. It's too early for some people. But all of you will get there in this retreat. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> because a lot of times people come in with a lot of preconceived notions of how the meditation should be based on their prior experiences. What I have found, generally speaking, is that people with a beginner's mind or a beginner's mindset progress through the practice faster than those who've done meditation practices before. So, absolutely, you're going to do just fine. small query yeah. uh, it is a part of meditation I'm sitting for, for 30 minutes or an hour if I need to attend a nature call yeah. uh, is it fine to take a small break in yeah yeah you can continue staying with loving kindness continue staying with and still attend to nature's call while being in loving kindness and then come back to your sit it's fine yeah can you tell us a little bit about the lineage of this twin tradition before uh Actually, I'm not too uh, familiar with it. Uh, from what I understand is uh, Bhante... Do you know more about it? Because you spent a little more time with Bhante. I mean, Bhante was a real iconoclast in a lot of ways. So, I mean, he trained with many different teachers. But as far as the Twim tradition, this is really like his brand, his branded method, what we're learning here. Um, but he was ordained in the Thai forest tradition. Yeah. He studied under um, Usulananda, that's right. And Mahasi Sayadaw. Yeah. And uh, Upandita, that's right. Muninder also. Yeah, that's right. So he's, he has had like a plethora of different teachers uh, along the way. But what he found was when he did the, uh, the I think at the time in Burma, was it there? He was doing the Mahasi style. And uh, he went through what was known as the six, 16 insight knowledges, that whole process. And he experienced all of them. And then they said, that's it, you're done. But he found that he thought that there was more to be done. And uh, at some point he met with a... Uh, Theravadan monk named uh, Bhante Punaji. And Punaji uh, said, you know, uh, you should go back to the suttas and uh, read the suttas and see what they say. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of hinted and pushed him towards that direction, but a process of relaxing, a process of letting go in that way. Because there was a tendency earlier on to be very, very... Uh, hard-lined about how the effort is supposed to be. And so that leads to very concentrated states of mind, which can lead to a lot of tightness and tension and pain in the body. And so Bhante actually uh, spent some time in a cave uh, with the, uh, the Majjhima Nikaya, 
which is what we're going to be mostly reading from throughout this retreat. And he only had uh, a cobra for a partner in the cave, as the story goes. And so he spent time reading through the suttas and seeing that the Buddha was talking about Nibbana as a process of tranquilizing formations, tranquilizing what are known as sankharas. Sankharas is a very multifaceted word. We'll go through that. But what he realized was tightness intention is a manifestation of craving. So this twin methodology is really sort of his brainchild based on his experiences and based on his interpretation of the suttas. But in terms of the lineage, he's had a lot of teachers from the Burmese tradition and the Thai forest tradition. Where'd you learn that? You'd always say, the Buddha taught me. <laughs> All from the suttas. Uh, can you hand it forward, please? The mic. Oh, wait, was there somebody else? Uh, I was just adding the note about community, which you already mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you had a question, right? So... Um, I maybe I misunderstood, but I feel like there was a sutta where it was talking about tranquilizing the body on the in breath and the and the yeah. out breath. Yeah. Is there a place for that somewhere in twim, like this indiscriminate constant six ring? Well, that's the thing; it's not indiscriminate constant six ring. Okay. It's only six ring when you get distracted. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, like, is there? Um, could it be beneficial to 6R every time you breathe? Or like like do some form of relaxation every time you breathe in and out? Or should we just... Well, I mean, that was uh, in the initial practice that Bhante had done, similar to that. And what he found was with the practice of the Brahma Viharas, because the metta that we're talking about is just the initial step. As you progress through the practice, you're going to be in touch with the rest of the Brahma Viharas, uh, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, which is empathetic joy, and upeka, which is equanimity. So this progressive uh, stages through these brahma-viharas, it, it actually primes the mind to experience jhana much easier than the breath. So that's why he put an emphasis on metta. Because it's the feeling of metta and the feeling of the brahma-viharas are pretty much suitable and resonate with the different qualities and factors of the jhanas, as we'll see. In fact, there is a sutta called the Metta Sahagata Sutta, which talks about the limits of loving kindness going all the way to the fourth jhana and then compassion to the infinite space and mudita and, and so on and so forth. So that's why we do that. But uh, I know that uh, Bhante had a book, has a book called uh, Breath of Love, which talks about the Anapanasati in that regard. But I haven't done that practice, so I can't really speak to it. The practice that I have done is the Brahma Viharas. That's worked for me. Can you pass it down, please? Uh, I just want to talk to my, myself. I know the answer, but I still want to <laughs> ask you. <laughs> so I have a tendency of trying too hard. And yeah. uh, uh, like I want to 
I want to do six direction now. Like, yeah. Then there should not be any time gap. Yeah. So this kind of tendency, I know that this is, this is, this itself is a hindrance. Yes. Can you give some suggestions? This is Bhavatanna. This is the craving for existence. I want to be this kind of meditator. I want to be able to radiate the six directions right now. I don't want any distractions in my mind. That's not possible. Not until you perfect the teaching. You perfect the technique. So, you know, as the old adage goes, practice makes perfect. Until then, enjoy the ride. Don't try so hard. Let it go. Be, be more accepting of the situation. And the moment you accept it, it goes away. That's the magic of it. So if you start with the practice, when you sit down, you have this determined striving that, yes, I'm going to experience the six directions and I'm going to radiate from the first moment I close my eyes. For the first hour, you're going to be dealing with a lot of distractions because of that determined striving. But if you sit with the attitude of, okay, let's see how this meditation goes. Every meditation is like a new episode in a wonderful series in your mind. You don't know what's going to happen. But you just stay tuned and observe. I always say, you know, in, in my talks that I could condense everything that I say into one statement. Observe and six are. I could save you guys a lot of time by just saying those two things. But when you sit down for the practice, don't have an intention of this is what I want to do. This is how I have to do it. Let your mind settle down. Just relax. Ease into it. And once your mind is relaxed, it will tell you, I want to radiate uh, loving kindness. I want to radiate equanimity. I want to radiate compassion. And then you start. But when you're starting, don't push that I have to send the loving kindness in this way. Or don't you know, think that if I, if I put in more energy, it's going to somehow increase the intensity of the loving kindness. No, it's only going to increase the intensity of your headaches. Right? So you have to bring that level of enjoyment in the practice. Enjoy it for the sake of enjoying the practice, nothing else. There's nowhere to go. There's no one to be. There's nothing to do. Just relax. Allow it to unfold. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, all the way in the back there. I kind of enjoy this back and forth with the mic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this is part of the practice. Yeah. But, um, you know, in terms of like uh, prerequisites, you know, because I'm just coming into this retreat like, just yeah. like this, you know. Yeah. So in terms of prerequisites and practicals, do you want to repeat or reinforce something? Uh, in terms of prerequisites, like, I, I guess you missed out on some of the stuff that you were talking about, right, Sora? I don't know if you were there when Sora was talking. No, I wasn't there. Ah, okay. okay, so the prerequisites were covered. In terms of practicals, is there something more 
from your experience that you would uh, maybe reinforce or suggest? Well, no, I mean, everything I've spoken of when you were here, that's yeah. basically it. But if there's anything else in terms of schedule and, yeah, you know. Speak okay. Yeah. Yes, in terms of um, holding the object or focusing on the object, uh, I mean, there's like many teachers that uh, advise that uh, you get like really close to the object, mm -hmm. even to the point of merge your mind mm -hmm. with the object. In your uh, in this method, is I understand is different. It's like a yeah. never get that close to the object. So, can you explain a little bit of right? It's uh, going back to what Venerable Metananda said about, you know, becoming too focused on the finger and without realizing what's going on here. The reason why we're doing this is because we're, we want the hindrances to come up. We want to deal with the hindrances as and when they come up. There's a tendency in certain practices to be able to just suppress the hindrances and then stay with the object of meditation. But when that happens, when you come out of the object, when you come out of the meditation, you might feel very nice, very joyful, a lot of bliss, relaxed, and so on. But then something happens and triggers a hindrance, and there's no way for you to actually deal with that hindrance. You just automatically react. So what we're doing here is it's an open, spacious kind of practice where the mind is allowing things to come as and when they come, and then dealing with them as and when they arise. So the analogy that I like to use is you think about your object of meditation like the planet Earth. It's a planet. And you think about your attention like a satellite that, that orbits that planet. So your attention is orbiting around the experience of loving kindness. And so because of that, there's a certain distance, there's a certain space there. And so something comes up, some debris, space debris comes up. That's the hindrance. How do you deal with it? You 6R. Maybe you get distracted to the point that the satellite goes out of orbit. And so to bring it back into orbit, you 6R and you come back. So this helps you to deal with the hindrances. That's the reason why we don't want to become super focused. There, please. I'm assuming that uh, while there's nothing to be done and no one to do anything, that somehow this practice is pointing or preparing us in the direction of Nibbana. I mean, and that's why the tranquil and the wisdom. So then the selflessness aspect and all those things. It will, reveal, it will be revealed right. to you. Okay, you don't have you. to think about it. It happens as an experience. Great, thanks. Last questions, no? Okay, I think we can distribute the books and then we'll share merit. Yeah.
Did everybody get a book? Uh, so, there. So I think just one person didn't get a book. So we're having more books shipped out. They'll come up later uh, during this retreat. So since on the topic of books, I don't want you guys to kind of go deep into that book. It's just for reference. You can just scroll, you know, uh, go through it, see whatever it is that you know you might uh, look at. But don't don't become too. You know, this is not a retreat where you have to read and then study and then we're going to discuss it, right? It's just for your reference. And um, the other thing I was going to say is noble silence. I know Saurabh has already talked about that, but I have a tendency to emphasize this a lot, which is you want to uh, uh, maintain noble silence. There's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, if you talk to someone, it can distract them from their practice. And it could disturb your own mind. So for your sake and for the sake of others, please maintain noble silence. Okay, so, yeah. Well, I'm going to get into it, but I'll tell you. So what he's referring to is, uh, you know, right speech. That happens as a result. Well, the thing about noble silence, okay, another thing, right? So just because you're doing noble silence doesn't mean that when you come to the interview, you don't talk to me. Because <laughs> I've had people do that. They'll be like, you told me to maintain noble silence. So I'm going to write down everything that happened, and then we're going to communicate by writing each other what happened while we're sitting together. I don't want any of that. When you're here in in the when you're in the interview room, you can speak. Obviously, you want to be practical about things. If you need to pass the salt, if you need to, you know, whatever practical things you need to say, say it. No big deal. So, in terms of right speech that he was referring to, there's an acronym that I use, which is called THINK. T H I N K for right speech. Right speech means refraining from speech that is false, that is harsh, that is abusive. It is unnecessary, causes restlessness, and so on. So for that, I created a, well, there's this acronym that, that I've used, which is called THINK, T-H-I-N-K. So T stands for timeliness. Is it the right time to say what you want to say? H is for honesty. Do you know what you're going to say is honest and true? Or if you don't, make sure you tell the person this is what I've been told. I is for intention. Right? Is it intentionally wholesome or intentionally unwholesome? What is the intention behind what it is that you want to say? N is for necessity. Is it necessary for the person to hear what you're going to say? And K is for kindness. Can you say what you're going to say with kindness? Now, I've been approached by somebody who asked, you know, well, sometimes I can't be kind about what it is I'm going to say. Sometimes I need to be a little more assertive. 
that's fine, but what is the intention behind that? Is it to inflict uh, harm on that person or is it to correct them? So you have to go back to your intention and see what that is. But generally, T-H-I-N-K is this. Timeliness, honesty, intention, necessity, and kindness. Good. All right. If there's nothing else, let's share some merit. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.